that we're talking about in Genesis chapter 3, you can turn back there, is Satan. Now, for Eve, this would have been a very confusing time, likely, because this creature was ambiguous. He didn't come across as an evil creature. He didn't come across as, as not from God. And so I think the, sense, the way that we see him, first of all, here in Genesis chapter 3, that he is just simply a serpent. He comes kind of ambiguously, don't know the difference, don't know whether he's good or, or evil. Eve could have been deceived as to think, is this really a representative from God? Maybe this is God's servant speaking to me. And so it gives us a little bit of um, insight into what was going on. Now, the characteristics of the serpent are at least two. First of all, he was crafty. Did you see that the first part of verse 1? He was more crafty than any beast of the field. Now, in our language, crafty has a negative connotation, doesn't it? Like when someone plays a prank on us, we say, that was a pretty crafty trick you played on us. Or, that was pretty crafty of you. But I don't think that's what Moses has in mind. Not, not the idea of cunning or crafty in a negative way like we think about it. The word crafty in the Greek translation of the Old Testament. Now, remember, this was originally written in Hebrew, but quickly for the, the uh, Greek audience, the, the Old Testament was translated from Hebrew to Greek. We call this translation of the Old Testament the Septuagint. The Septuagint uses the same word that Jesus uses in Matthew chapter 10, verse 16. And he says this, I'm sending you out as sheep among wolves, and so you ought to be as crafty as serpents and as innocent as doves. Right? Now the word we know that goes there instead of crafty is what? Wise or shrewd. Right? And so, so we start to see that there's a positive connotation to this word as well. It doesn't have to be this negative idea of being deceitful and scheming. Rather, it is, it is, it can be used in a positive way. In fact, Jesus uses the same word again in Matthew chapter seven, verse twenty-four, when he says that the crafty man built his house upon the rock. Right, the wise man. Jesus certainly didn't mean cunning or deceitful. He simply means wise. So, according to the Scriptures and the way this word is used later on in the Greek language, which is not the best indication, but maybe gives us an idea, Satan probably is employing the wisest creature, non-human, on the earth. Okay, The, the wisest non-rational creature on the earth. The most shrewd animal that God had made. That's the idea here. So, the first characteristic of the serpent is that he was crafty. The second characteristic is that he spoke. Now, this is interesting. This should have tipped Adam and Eve off if they were paying close attention. Animals are not speaking creatures. The ability to speak with understandable language is something that is given only to those people who are made in the image of God. Okay, animals are not made in the image of God. See, when, when this serpent spoke, Eve accepted him as a credible messenger from God that perhaps he was speaking on behalf of God. Maybe she misunderstood the command that we'll, we'll see here in just a second. 
Notice the stealth of the beast. At the second part of the verse, we see that he doubts God, God's Word. The second part of the verse says, And he said to the woman, Indeed, has God said, You shall not eat from any tree of the garden? It's interesting that the serpent does not do this. Go, eat from the tree that God told you not to eat. And watch how the whole rest of human history is destroyed as a result of your sin. Is that how he approaches Eve or Adam? Not at all. He comes very shrewdly. Satan is often very covert in his temptations. Now, there are occasions when Satan is overt, that he is very obvious about what he's doing, and some people uh, fall into that trap. But for the most part, Satan doesn't masquerade himself as an angel of darkness, does he? But Paul says in 2 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 14, that he transforms himself into an angel of light. It appears as if he is speaking on behalf of God. Notice what he does here in the questioning of God, God's Word. He manipulates it. Now, in the, in the Hebrew language, the words that come out of the serpent's mouth begin with the word not. Okay? Indeed has God said, not you shall eat from any tree of the garden is the idea. So what the Hebrew language does is based on the place of the word order or the the place of the word in the sentence, that often determines the emphasis. Okay, so so he puts that word at the beginning of the sentence to put a lot of emphasis on it. Are you kidding me? God said that you could not eat of that of, of any tree of the garden. And notice what he says. He says, you can't eat from any tree. Is that what God told you? You can't eat from any tree? How restrictive of a God do you serve? Look at chapter 2, verse 16, because here we see what God originally did tell them. And this is important in order for us to understand Satan's, Satan's ways. Chapter 2, verse 16. This was the original command given by God. The Lord God commanded the man, saying, From any tree of the garden you may eat freely. Notice the liberality that God has. You may eat freely from any tree of the garden. And here's the restriction. Verse 17. But from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat, for in the day that you eat from it you will surely die. So here comes Satan in the form of a serpent. Has God really said that you can't eat from any tree of the garden? Is God withholding something good from you? Do you really serve a good God? There must be some mistake here. You you must have misheard what you were supposed to do. So Satan is subtly introducing the idea that God is not good. Because if he were good, then his word would be good. He would allow you less restriction. He's he's also introducing the idea that we have the ability to judge God's Word. That we can stand in judgment over God's Word as if we are the judge in the courtroom and God's Word comes to the stand as the defendant. And God's Word... Uh, tries to defend itself against us, and we stand in judgment on God's Word. 
Who are we to stand in judgment of God's Word? See, Satan subtly brings this in. Has God really said that? Now, a proper response by Eve at this point would have ended it quickly. And it would have been this. God is God. He created me. He commanded me not to eat of this tree and I will obey it. Now, I'm sure we all would have done that if we were in her skin. But the Word of God begins with with a doubting by the serpent. God's Word is doubted. Secondly, God's Word is distorted in verses 2 and 3. God's Word is doubted and then God's Word is distorted. In order to see this distortion, we need to compare Eve's uh, recitation of God's command. Okay, So what she says God's command is, it's different from what God said it was. So let's read her her understanding of what the command was, and then we'll go back and read God's again. Chapter 3, verse 2. The woman said to the serpent, From the fruit of the trees of the garden we may eat, but from the fruit of the tree which is in the middle of the garden, God has said, You shall not not eat from it or touch it, or you will die. Okay, now let's go back to chapter 2, verse 16, and read it again. The Lord God commanded the man, saying, From any tree of the garden you may eat freely, but from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil... You shall not eat, for in the day that you eat from it, you will surely die. Lots of similarities there. But there are a few differences. There are at least three differences. The first one is that she reduced what God said was freely eat. Okay, did you see that in verse um, fifteen, or verse 16? From any tree of the garden, you may eat freely. Notice the liberality of God. That He is a generous God. Now she says... In chapter 3, verse 2, from the fruit of the trees of the garden, we may eat. What she should have said is we may freely eat if she wanted to represent God perfectly. Now, we can give her some um, leeway there, but I think what's happening, likely, is that she is now starting to downplay the emphasis of, of the availability of fruit that was in the garden that they had the availability to go to all these trees in this beautiful paradise except for one. So she says, we may eat of these, uh, of any tree. But she doesn't say we may freely eat. The second difference is that she adds not touching it. Right? She says, but from the, verse 3, but from the fruit of the tree which is in the middle of the garden, God has said, you shall not eat from it or touch it. She adds that to God's prohibition. Is that what God said in chapter 2, verse 17? No. He said, if you eat from it, you will surely die. It seems as if Eve is highlighting the restrictions of God. She's emphasizing His restrictions, the, the things that she can't do. Now, we... We um, often do the same thing when we get restrictions from God or others. We, we do this. We, we emphasize the restriction when we don't like the prohibition. When something is, is told for us not to do, we highlight the restrictions. For example, we receive a paperback from our teacher. Now, on the last page it says, this paper needs more research. We take that paper to our classmates and we tell them, 
and we let everyone know that our teacher thinks that we are lazy and that he doesn't like the way that we write. Well, is that what the teacher said? The teacher simply said, you need more research. He didn't say anything about uh, your personal condition or that he didn't like your writing. Or let me try to help with another example. If our boss calls us into his office and says, we need to do something about all this time that you're spending on Facebook at work. And you leave from your from his office and go to your co-workers and said, if I use Facebook one more time at work, then I'm going to be fired. Well, is that what the boss said? The boss said, we need to do something about this, this, um, this time that you're spending not on work. Can you say anything about being fired? And so... When we don't like a prohibition, we magnify the restrictions that we have against us. And I think this is what Eve is doing. Okay, there have been many suggestions as to what happened here. Maybe Adam changed it when he talked to Eve, because she wasn't there apparently when God gave this command. Um, maybe Adam changed it and said, you know what, let's be careful. Let's not even touch it. That very well could have been. But I, I tend to think that Eve is, is falling into the trap of Satan, which is, he begins by getting her to doubt the Word, and now she's starting to distort the Word of God. She doesn't mention anything about freely eating of the garden, and now she adds not touching it. And the third thing that she does is that she takes out the Word surely from, from the prohibition or the, the consequence. At the end of the verse it says, God has said you shall not eat from it or touch it, or you will die. Well, technically God said you for in the day that you eat from it, you will surely die. So it appears as if Eve is minimizing God's judgment. She's already figured it out in her mind that it's not nearly as bad as what she had originally thought. God said you will surely die. Now Satan has come in, doubted God's word, and, and, and now she has distorted it. And this seems to indicate that the serpent's plan was working. It seems as if God really isn't being good to Eve and Adam, and that he is a bit too restrictive, and that his judgment is a little bit too harsh. Once God's word is questioned, and once God's word is distorted, it won't be long before God's word is denied. Verses 4 and 5. God's word is denied, and that's exactly what Satan does in verse 4. He flat out denies God's word. The serpent said to the woman, You surely will not die. Literally, the, the, the order of the words in the sentence, again, begins with the word not. So it would read like this in our English translation. This is a little bit wooden, but this is how it would read. Not die, you will. Sounds like Yoda, doesn't it? But the idea is that the emphasis is on not. It's placed at the front to try to show that there's a negation here. It's not going to happen. You're not going to die. It is not going to happen. I can tell you that. Now notice the promises. Notice the two promises that he makes in these two verses. The first promise is that you will not die. Verse 5 gives us the second one. <clears throat> For God knows that in the day you eat from it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. I take this this um, this promise from Satan in verse 5 as one. That is, 
you will be like your eyes will be opened. And the idea of your eyes being open is that you will be like God and you will know good from evil. Okay, so the two promises I believe that Satan's giving here is verse 4, you won't die and your eyes will be opened. Okay, we'll talk about what both of those mean. So here's what the serpent is saying. The only re- reason God said that you would die is because He knows that you will be like Him if you eat that fruit. And He doesn't want you to see like He sees. What God doesn't want you to have is actually something that's good for you. And so you should take it. You will not surely die. You know, God makes him out, Himself out to be a good creator, but He's holding you back a little bit by, by giving you this restriction. And so if you eat this fruit, I'm telling you, on the authority that I have, the serpent says, you will not die, like he says, and your eyes will be opened knowing, the, knowing God and, and or um, be like God and knowing good and evil. And if you know the rest of the story, you know that Satan is right in a sense. That when they eat the fruit, they do not drop down dead like Adonias and Sapphira did when they lied to the Holy Spirit. That's what we would expect if God, God's promise was true or if die is, is what we think it is. And so there's a sense in which they did not die. And Satan was right. You will not surely die. They didn't die. And your eyes will be opened. We'll find out later their eyes indeed are opened. But the serpent was only speaking half truths. We'll see what happens when we we'll see that when we get to verse seven. He was only speaking half truths. God's word is doubted, God's word is distorted, God's word is denied, and then fourthly, God's word is despised. Verses six and seven. Here we see the act of sin in verse six. When the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was a delight to the eyes, and that the tree was desirable to make one wise, she took from its fruit and ate. If Adam and Eve would have passed this test of obedience, God would have permitted them to eat of the tree of life in the middle of the garden forever. They would have been able to be confirmed in their holiness. No sin would have ever entered the world. They would have lived forever. But they failed the test. It began with Eve. There are three aspects to her temptation. I believe every temptation. And that is, we we see those in verse 6. First of all, she saw. She saw, she desired, and she took. Sin begins with a look. We look at something that we, we want. And then we desire that thing that we looked at. And then we take it. And in doing so, we dethrone God. We take God off of His throne and put ourselves in His place and say, I can handle my life for myself. I don't need you, God. All the other trees were desirable and good to eat, should have been, but the serpent deceived Eve into thinking that this one tree, this prohibited one, was the most desire, the most desirable. It was the most desirable, it was the best that there is. And that's the one he's restricting you from. 
And this is part of our fallen nature now. That we want what is most desirable, often the one that we can't have. That becomes the most desirable. If you don't believe this, spend some time in the nursery and find out which toy is the child's favorite. Right? It's the, the one that the other kid has. If you don't believe this, then spend some time with some adults. Which house do adults generally want? Which car do they like? Which spouse? Which job? Which salary? It's generally the one that they don't have. And so it goes through this digression. This act of temptation, or these aspects of temptation, goes through this digression. She saw, she desired, and she took. David did the same thing. He saw Bathsheba on the roof. He desired to have her, and he took her. And by the way, when, when Satan tempts, he uses three primary appetites. He uses, first of all, the physical appetite. He uses the eye gate. Think of Satan tempting Jesus to turn this stone into bread. It doesn't have to be the eye, but some sort of physical desire. Think of the Apostle John. When in 1 John chapter 2, verse 16, he calls it the lust of the flesh. So there's this desire for, or this appeal to physical appetite. Then there's appeal to visual appetite. She saw that it was a delight to the eyes. Think of Satan when he tempts Jesus by showing him all the kingdoms of the world, the delights of the eyes. It's called the lust of the eyes by John in 1 John chapter 2, verse 16. And then the third appeal is appeal to social appetite. That she, was, she had the desire to be made wise. Satan did this when he tempted Jesus to throw himself off the pinnacle of the temple. It was a desire to, to, uh, for Jesus to be made wise. John calls this the boastful pride of life in 1 John 2.16. The act of sin is a, is a sad one, but it's one that we've participated in over and over again. We've defied the holy God and the word that has clearly been stated to us by God. So we have this deceptive act of the serpent this act of sin that's done by Eve and, and it's followed up by a passive defiance of Adam. Now this seems kind of like an oxymoron, passive defiance. It seems like he's being active in his defiance and I would suggest that that is true. He is being active in his defiance, but he's passively sitting back and doing nothing when he should be leading. Look at verse 6 at the end. It says, And that the tree was desirable to make one wise, she took from its fruit and ate and she gave also to her husband with her, and he ate. For Eve, I believe it was a genuine deception. And the reason I say that was because 2 Corinthians 11.3 tells us that the serpent deceived Eve by his wisdom. 1 Timothy 2.14 says that the woman was deceived. She wasn't shaking her fist in the face of God and saying, I hate you, I defy you, I hate all these restrictions you have against me. And I'm going to, to, to disobey you. No, it was, it was a genuine deception. She clearly didn't see what the serpent was doing. And she followed him. 
But Adam, I believe, seems to be more defiant than Eve. Notice where he is when this takes place. And she gave also, end of verse 6, she gave also to her husband with her. Where is Eve? Or, or where is Adam? Is he on the other side of the garden? Is he out getting some food? He's sitting there watching the whole thing. He's with her. I say, well, that sounds kind of generic. He could be anywhere. Maybe he came along later on. Maybe he came along and once she actually took of it, then he was with her. But I believe he was with her the whole time because Satan, when he talks to Eve, he uses the plural pronoun, you, every time he speaks. Okay, So verses 1-5, through five, I'll just give you an example. Verse 4, he says, You will not surely die. Or, he says, You shall not... Uh, excuse me. He says, You surely will not die. And, and the pronoun there, you, could be translated like this. You both will not surely die. That the both of you won't die. Adam was with her. And he should have known. He should have de den denied the serpent and led his wife to obey. And by the way, Adam had a greater revelation than Eve did at this point because he had the direct command from God, did he not? He also had a greater knowledge of animals. And the fact that before Eve was even created... He had all these animals come in front of him. He would have known that serpents don't talk. He would have been tipped off. That animals are not speaking creatures. The ability to speak understandable language is only given to those who are made in the image of God. God speaks. He made us in His image. Therefore, we speak. God is rational. We are rational. Animals are not. Animals don't speak in understandable language. God is a speaking God. Humans are speaking people. Animals are not. Eve probably or likely didn't know this. Because Adam was the one with the personal interaction or the, the um, close interaction with these creatures when he named them. And Adam was also given the specific responsibility to rule over all, all the animals. This was his responsibility as kind of the, the um, representative of God on the earth, this was his domain. He was supposed to rule over these animals. And so, instead of listening to God and ruling over these creatures, Adam rejected God and submitted to the creatures. Do you see how it's messed up the whole creation order? Or the whole structure of the universe? It should be God, Adam, animals. Instead, God's down here, animals are up here and Adam's in the middle. He had that specific responsibility to rule over them. Instead, he was ruled by them. He was supposed to be the leader, but instead he follows the woman into sin. So I would suggest that there was no deception with Adam. He knew exactly what he was doing. He contemplated out what he planned to do and defied the holy God he dethroned God. Notice the consequence of sin, verse 7. We'll see this 
more consequences in the week ahead, weeks ahead, but here is the immediate consequence. Then the eyes of both of them were opened, and they knew that they were naked, and they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loin coverings. And taking the fruit, they thought that they would be closer to God and more like God, but instead they became less like God and farther away from God. They were now separated from Him with spiritual death. Death. Satan was partially right. They didn't die. Like he said, they wouldn't die. And their eyes were opened, and their eyes were opened. But their eyes were not opened in a good way. Look at chapter 3, verse 22. You see that confirmed this fact that, that in fact their eyes were opened like the serpent had said. Chapter 3, verse 22, Then the Lord God said, Behold, the man has become like one of us, knowing good and evil. And now he might stretch out his hand and take also from the tree of life and eat and live forever. Their eyes were indeed open like the serpent had said, but it wasn't in a good way. No longer are they innocent. Now they are aware of themselves and what is their initial feeling that comes up? They're ashamed. So they go to make loin coverings. Go to cover themselves. The main difference between how they see good and evil and how God sees good and evil, God says that they're like us, that that humans are now like us, and so we need to do something about this. The main difference is that God knows good and evil, but He knows it from an external perspective. He knows it in the sense that he, he knows the danger that it brings. He knows the defiance that it is against Him. But He knows it from an external perspective. He's never committed evil. But humans would now know it in a way similar to how God knows it, much more intimately, but internally, experientially in a morally corrupt way. They would know evil. They would know good and evil. And so Satan was right in a sense. Their eyes indeed were open, but in a bad way. And they were also and, and he was also right in the sense that they didn't die. Adam lived till he was nine hundred and thirty years old. He didn't immediately die, at least. But they were expelled from the garden And that indicates that there was a death that had occurred. That is, a separation from God's special presence where He walked with them in the garden. That was all taken away. And so now there's a separation between God and man. A spiritual death. They were now confined to the realm of the dead instead of the realm of the living. And so they... So Satan was right in a sense, but he was also wrong. That's why I say those were half-truths. Not much has changed in the last several thousand years since this first sin has there. We still seek we still seek our own independence from God. We don't want to trust what He says about right and wrong. We want to figure it out ourselves. God, we know what will make us happy. We know where our joy could come from, so, so let me take the reins here. 
let me ignore you for a period of time and let me give it a try. I'll be God for a little while. Believer, God has provided for you to be spared from so much heartache and pain and evil if you will only trust and obey Him. That if you will see His restrictions as good, we often see restrictions as bad. We'll talk about this more next week. But but the restrictions are actually a good thing. It would have protected them. Watch out for the tactics of temptation. Temptation will rarely announce itself. Go eat the forbidden tree that God said not to do. It usually begins with questioning or doubting God's Word. Did God really say that? Is God's way really the best way? Is God's Word really what is best for you? It moves from doubting God's Word to distorting God's Word and then a denial. Before long, we've completely denied God's Word. We've defied and despised the Holy God. Watch out for Satan. Watch out for the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the boastful pride of life. Because in temptation, Satan often minimizes the negative consequences of sins, and he embellished the supposed prize that comes from following after that sin. Have you seen that in your life? It always seems like that, that it's, it's, it's like an oasis. Like, if I just commit this sin or, or participate in these wrong things, then it's going to be much more pleasant for me. When you get there, it's just a desert. It's a wasteland. It's a waste of your life and a waste of your time. And in doing so, you've defied the Holy God. Now, when you do sin against God, don't blame it on Satan. What we learn from this passage is that Satan doesn't force them to sin. He doesn't twist their arm or torture them until they sin. And he doesn't do that with you. He simply entices you. He uses his wisdom to get you to come and disobey God. James 1 says that no one is coerced to sin. No one is forced to sin, but is drawn away why or how? by his own lust and enticed. But we can't blame it on Satan. Okay? Because, and I know this, because in the millennium, Satan will be bound for 1,000 years and there still will be sin that takes place. The only difference is between then and now is Jesus Christ will judge righteously and swiftly. But there still will be sin because we have a human nature. We have a sinful, fallen nature now because of this initial sin. So don't blame Satan. We are drawn away by our own lust and enticed. And then finally, we must listen to and obey God's Word. This is why it's so critical that we know and we hide God's Word in our hearts. Why we spend so much time learning God's Word. The source of eternal life is in the Word of God. And this Word of God has been revealed through Jesus Christ, our Savior. John 14:15 tells us that obeying the commands of God is a test of our love for God. He says, if you love Me, keep My commandments. 
You want to show that you love God, then, then follow what He says. You need to understand what He says and then follow it. And that means that obeying God's Word is showing with our actions what we truly believe and who we truly believe is the absolute authority. Do we believe that God is or are we on the throne of our own lives? Set God aside. I'll take care of it from here. See, when we obey God, when we submit to what He has said in His Word, then we show who we believe is the absolute authority. In other words, to ignore God's Word shows that we do not accept or do not want to accept that God is our ultimate authority. There's only one God. He's the absolute sovereign over all the universe. Will you accept Him by obeying Him? Or will you reject Him by questioning Him and ignoring Him, distorting His Word, denying it, and despising it? Our lifeline is God's Word. We need to know it and live it. In fact, Habakkuk chapter 2, verse 4 says, The righteous one will live by faith. Faith in the Word of God. Faith in what God has revealed to us. 